Ah, that is impressive. Well, I went on the website, Attractions of USA, and this is what I came up with. That was the second house that, or the second place. The, yeah, I know. It's like, seriously? The most impressive houses? You get the, the shoe over in Hellam? Um, how about this one? Oh, that's the Longenberger office in Newark, Ohio. I've actually been there. And I've uh, been in, inside of that building. And the whole uh, lobby area goes the whole seven stories. I was there at Christmas time, so it was pretty cool. But it's quite a sight as you're driving in Ohio and you see this basket appear on the horizon and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. So, yes, that was the number one. So the, that, then the shoe, and then the Air Force Academy Chapel. When I was there in last, last September, it was covered in scaffolding and tarps. So I saw none of it. Well, also, the World Atlas also lists some beautiful buildings. And no one mentioned this, kind of surprised. The Empire State Building in New York City. And then right near the Empire State Building, you have the Chrysler Building which you can see from the Empire State Building in New York City. And then there's this building. That's a library in the University of California in San Diego. It's named for Dr. Seuss. But these were, on the website, the um, you know, beautiful buildings. It's like, really? That's what they came up with. Well, in today, as we look at Mark chapter 13, a comment about a building is what leads Jesus to one of his longest teachings in the New Testament, because he is teaching about one topic. And apparently, he wanted his disciples to know and understand clearly what he was talking about, so he spoke on it for quite a while. So, Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 13 or in your devices to Mark chapter 13. And as you are getting there, let me give you the setting for Mark 13. It is Holy Week or what we would call Holy Week. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem. The multitude of people who were there for the Passover were shouting Hosanna. They were laying their cloaks down on the ground. They were waving palm branches and they were claiming him as the Messiah, as superficially as it was. Then on Tuesday, Jesus went into the temple and he cleared out the money changers, and he threw them out. And of course, that didn't set well with the Pharisees or Sadducees or the other temple workers, but he cleared them out. And then we come to Wednesday, and Wednesday, Jesus goes back to the temple. Maybe he goes back to the temple to send a message to the money changers, you're not coming back in, I'm keeping you out, because it was Passover week. There were lots of people in Jerusalem, which meant the money changers were going to make a lot of money. So Jesus goes back into the temple. And the last part of Mark chapter 11 and chapter 12, Jesus is teaching in the temple. 
So we come to 13, and Jesus and his disciples were leaving the temple. It was a long day of teaching. And as uh, they were leaving the temple, they were going to Bethany, because that's where Jesus was staying, just a few miles away. He was staying at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So as they were leaving, one of the disciples says, wow, isn't this temple beautiful? Well, look at those humongous stones that makes up the temple. And Jesus replies in verse 2, do you see these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, an important footnote to mention here, because it's really easy to miss, is that Jesus predicts the utter destruction of the temple, that not one stone's going to be left on another. And it happened about 40 years later. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, and it happened. So what does that tell you? Hmm. He must be God. That's just another proof of Jesus' deity. But that must come as a major shock to the disciples because they were just admiring the beauty of the structure of the temple. And Jesus said, you know what, guys? It's all going to be destroyed. Not one stone's going to be left on another. <laughs> now, wait a second. Whoa, whoa. What a shock. Because these disciples were expecting Jesus to set up his kingdom. I mean, that's what they were looking forward to, Jesus setting up his kingdom, because these disciples, you remember, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They were arguing about who was going to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom, because they were so focused on the kingdom, and now Jesus is saying, wait, this temple's going to be destroyed? It's going to be utterly demolished? Wait, what? So it comes as quite a shock wait a second, that, that can't be. Have, have you ever had a, a phone call that totally shocked you? Have you ever had news that totally rattled you to the core? And I have. <laughs> I was sitting in a school board meeting and got a phone call, which I don't know why I left my phone on, but I did. And... I answered it and said, ah, oh, your wife's in a car accident. Um, they're taking her to the hospital. Oh, okay. Thanks. <laughs> well, it shook me to the core. I left that room so fast. The disciples were shocked to the core because that totally blew their idea of Jesus and the kingdom. I kind of think that as they were leaving the city and walking to an olive grove that I don't think they said much. I think they were mauling it over in their minds. Hey, wait, what? What is going on here? Wait, the kingdom. I mean, Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that. Wait, he should be doing this. Wait, how? All kinds of questions. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, um, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign 
that they are about to be fulfilled. The disciples not only want to know when this will happen, but what are the signs leading up to this happening? I know it's late, so I'm going to give you an overview real quick, so hold on. Verses 5 and 6. Jesus has said there's going to be a great deception. There's going to be many people that come and say, hey, I am the Messiah, follow me. So know that there's going to be lots of people saying, hey, follow me because I am Jesus, or hey, follow me because I am doing the right thing. Even today, folks, we have lots of people who claim to speak for God, but don't talk about the truth of the Bible. Jesus said, hey, guys, beware. There's a lot of people who will deceive you, verses 5 and 6. Verses 7 and 8, Jesus said, there's going to be destruction. And with wars, you have a lot of destruction. I'm sure if you have followed at all the news and the war of Ukraine, you've seen lots of pictures of the destruction that is happening. Jesus said, there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars. Notice that there's going to be destruction. In verse 8, Jesus says, there will be natural disasters. He specifically mentions earthquakes and famines. I want to show you something as I was studying this this week. There's a map. See that map? There's a lot of yellows and oranges and reds and deep reds. Uh, the yellow is, uh, they are abnormally dry. The oranges, they are um, moderate drought. The red is extreme drought, and the dark red is exceptional drought. Now, if you were to put a percentage of America that is in a drought or abnormally dry, what would you say that would be? 80%? 80%. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. Huh. You think a famine is possible? <sighs> yeah, when you're looking at that kind of drought. Um, now, if you can find Pennsylvania there, guess what? Pennsylvania is in the white, which means there is no drought. How blessed are we to be here, folks? For sure. But I want you to remember this, folks, that the Bible always corresponds to reality. The Bible always corresponds to reality. Or we can say reality always corresponds to what the Bible says because the Bible is truth. Amen? You better say amen real loud because the Bible is truth. And the Bible always corresponds to reality. And Jesus said that there is going to be natural disasters, earthquakes, and famines. Jesus also says in verses 9 to 12 that there's going to be great distress. Because you will be beaten. You will be arrested. You will be hated even by your own family. If you look at... The last part of verse 13, it says, you will be hated because of me. 
So what happens today if we stand up for biblical values? If we today say that action is sin, you know what they say about us? They say that's hate speech, right? That is hate speech. When we call sinful actions sin, well, that's hate speech. The Bible always corresponds to reality. These are the signs, Jesus said. If you get back to the very end of verse 8, Jesus says it's like labor pains. And the closer to birth, the more intense, the more frequent the labor pains, the closer we get to the second coming of Christ, the more frequent and the more intense these signs will be. Deception, destruction, disaster, and distress. Verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus specifically mentions an event the abomination that causes desolation or the abomination of desolation. That is specifically mentioned in Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 13. Daniel 9, 11, and 13. By the way, there's a small group that meets on Thursdays at 10 o'clock in the library, and they are studying the book of Daniel verse by verse. So if you're free on Thursday mornings at 10 o'clock, Come and join the group meeting in the library. Okay, back to the message. This abomination of desolation that Jesus talks about has not happened. You know why? Because look what verse 14 says. It says, when you see the abomination that caused desolation standing where it does not belong, what are those next words? Let the reader understand and respond. So why didn't Jesus say, well, you who hear this know and understand? You know why? Because it has not happened yet. Because we can look back and say, oh, well, it has not happened. Let the reader respond, because the book of Mark was not written then. So we know it has to be in the future. All right, we have to go to Daniel chapter 9 to understand the whole thing about the abomination of desolation. In Daniel 9... Uh, 24 to 27, we need to remember the Jewish calendar is built on a series of sevens. The seventh day of the week is the Sabbath. The seventh week after Passover brings Pentecost. The seventh month brings the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths. The seventh year is a sabbatical year, and after seven sabbatical years comes the year of Jubilee. So, the Jewish calendar is built on seven. So Daniel gets a vision. Actually, it's an answer to prayer that Gabriel brings to him and says, Daniel, there's going to be seven, 77 periods of seven years. It's going to be 77-year periods. All right? I think I got it right that time. There's going to be 77-year periods. 
Daniel's like, okay, I understand seven, the whole thing, yeah, okay. And then the message is 69 of those seven-year periods will happen during this time when Israel and the city of Jerusalem and the temple are rebuilt. That will start the clock. And it will end when the Messiah is cut off. Okay. We have the advantage of looking back and say, oh yeah, Artaxerxes in 445 BC said, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, and restore the nation of Israel. That happened. And we can look back and say, yeah, the Messiah was cut off when he was crucified. Okay. And you know what? If you do the math, 69, seven-year periods, it all works out to... Artaxerxes' decree and the crucifixion of Jesus. Why isn't that just a coincidence? Oh, wait, the Bible always corresponds to reality. But that leaves one seven-year period, and that's described in Daniel 9.27. Here it is. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Seven years. In the middle of that seven, seven years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. There you go. That's what Jesus said. And at the end, that is decreed is poured out on him. He is the Antichrist. We understand that because we need to look at 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to a group of Christians who think that they are in the tribulation time. They are in the time of judgment where God's going to pour out his wrath on the earth. And so they are greatly concerned. They are like, you know, hey, are, are we in the day of the Lord? Are we going to be judged? And, and so they are greatly concerned. And Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. There's that deception word again. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, which is another name for the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What is an abomination to God? You saw it over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It's idolatry. And this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, sets himself up in the temple that is rebuilt and says, you all worship me. And God says, that is an abomination and I'm going to cause the earth to be desolate. And he does. All you have to do is read the book of Revelation, chapters 6 to 19, to know that that's exactly what God is going to do. All right, let's go back to Mark 13. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, because those days will be of distress unequaled from the beginning, it's going to be worse than the flood. 
It's going to be worse than the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because of those days of distress, be unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. That says a lot. That's how bad it will be. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. For the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. So apparently, from what Jesus is saying here, there are people who are going to be saved during this time. There are people who are going to be, uh, become believers in Jesus. And so because of them, he is going to shorten the time of judgment so that they can survive. Okay, let's skip down to verse 23. So Jesus says, be on your guard. Then look what he says. I have told you everything ahead of time. So this is what you can expect. He repeats himself. He says, so be on your guard. You go back to verse 9. What does he say there? Be on your guard. If you go back to verse 5, he says, watch out. Be aware of what's coming. That's the end of the story of humanity here on earth. We know how the world is going to end. Verses 24 to 26 reads, But in those days following that distress... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Boy, a lot's going to happen before Jesus comes back in with power and great glory. So how come the sun is diminished the stars. Why, why is all that gone? You know why? Because who is the light of the world? We don't need a sun anymore. We got Jesus coming back in great glory and great power. And it says that he is coming in clouds. Did you notice yesterday? There was not a cloud in the sky, was there? I thought to myself, Jesus isn't coming back today. No clouds. A question that we often get asked. Are we going to be here? What, what, are we going to be here to be judged by God during the tribulation time? Nope, we're not. We are not going to be here. And I believe the Bible is very clear on that. Because the tribulation is a time for God's judgment of sin. That's what he is doing. He is judging the unbelieving world for their sin. You as a believer have already had your sins judged. You know how? 
because you believed in Jesus as your Savior. And Jesus took the judgment for your sin by dying on the cross. That's why I don't think we're going to be here. Because God's not going to judge us for our sin because we've trusted Christ. Jesus took our punishment. Jesus took our judgment. That's why we as believers, we're not going to be here for the tribulation. Romans 8, Paul talks about, man, your sins have been totally wiped out. There is nothing left to judge you for your sins because Jesus took it. In the book of Revelation, chapters 1, 2, and 3 talks about the church. Come to chapter 4, when it talks about God's judgment, church is never mentioned again. But you come to chapter 19, and it talks about the marriage feast of the Lamb. Oh, and guess who's there? A multitude upon multitudes of people. The church. We are called the bride of Christ. How can you have the marriage feast of the Lamb, a wedding feast without the bride? Ah, we're going to be there. We're going to be there. Because that marriage feast of the Lamb, the wedding supper, as, as people call it, that happens during the tribulation. And we'll be in heaven. So, how did all the believers get to heaven? How, how, how did we get out of the tribulation? Now, I have to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. You know why? They need a head start because they're six feet under. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's called the rapture. And that happens before the tribulation. It can't happen after. I mean, if we're caught up to be with Jesus and then he's coming back down again, we would go up and down? I mean, we would get whiplash. It doesn't make any sense, which is why I think, why I believe with my whole heart that the rapture happens at the beginning of the tribulation and not at the end. All right, back to Mark 13. Jesus finishes his discussion with two illustrations. One is the fig tree. And it says, hey, you know what time of year it is because you see the twig swelling. You see the leaves starting to come out. And you all know that summer is coming. Just like with us, when you look around at the, the leaves today, beautiful color, we all know what's coming. And I hate it. I hate winter. But I know it's coming because I can see the color on the leaves. Then we come to verse 30, and a lot of people get hung up on this. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. When Jesus said this generation, he wasn't talking about the disciples' generation because he would have said, your generation will not pass away. 
Jesus says, this generation will not pass away. Well, what generation? We have to go back to verse 14 when he says, when you see these things happen, the things concerning the abomination of desolation. That's the generation that will not pass away. When the generation sees the abomination of desolation, they will see it through to the very end. That's the generation that will not pass away, not the disciples' generation, because he did not say, your generation will not pass away. Let's go on. Verses 32 to 37. Because everybody wants to know this, don't we? But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You say, well, how can Jesus not know? How can Jesus not know when, when these things are about to happen? Because Philippians 2 talks about that. Because when he became man, he laid aside some of his divine attributes. So he could say, nor does the son know when he's coming back. But I want you to show you something in Acts. This is, this is cool. Man, I just, I don't know, I've been a preacher, I don't know for how long, 40-some years, and I just saw this. And it's like, oh, my word, look. Acts 1, 6 and 7. Because I, I referenced that earlier because the disciples were asking, okay, Jesus, is the kingdom going to come? Then he gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? See, they're concerned about the kingdom again. Look what, look what Jesus says here. This is awesome. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Who did he say? He, he said, you're not to know. He didn't say, I don't know. You're not to know. You know what? After the resurrection, Jesus knows. He absolutely knows when he's coming back. I just saw that for the first time. Oh, yeah. He knows. <laughs> he absolutely knows when he's coming back. Verse 33, back to Mark 13. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know what the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their own assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Verse 35. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Folks, we are to watch. The signs of Jesus' coming are very clear. Um, we have all kinds of disasters coming. We have all kinds of distress coming. We have all kinds of destruction coming, all kinds of distress coming. It's coming. Beware. Jesus illustrates it when he says that it's like labor pains. The closer we get to Jesus coming back, the more frequent all those signs will happen. Know that, Jesus says. Know that. Watch. 
His coming back is uh, a warning to the unbelievers, but it's certainly a wonderful blessing. It's certainly for us as believers, it gives us great comfort to know that he's coming back for us. And once we get to heaven, we're going to enjoy that marriage feast of the Lamb. We're going to be partying. That's the last D, the divine. Our second takeaway is keep, keep on track with your faith. Keep on track with your faith. Don't let those deceive you. Don't let anyone talk you out of what you know the Bible says. Keep on track. May your faith in God grow deeper. Know that these things are coming. Keep on track with your faith. The third takeaway. There are a lot of people that are heading for God's judgment. There are a lot of people that are going to face the judgment of God. Let's warn them. Let's let them know what is going to happen Tomorrow night, there's going to be a lot of people using our parking lot because they're taking their children trick-or-treating across the street. So we have lots of people coming to us tomorrow night. So why not warn them about what's coming? Why not share the good news of Jesus Christ with them? So we are. So we're going to hand out information on our church, how you can know Jesus, and we have a few pieces of candy to share with them too. Pray, pray with us that people's hearts would be open to the message that we share with them. All right, folks, our takeaways. Jesus is coming back. Get ready. Let's warn people that judgment's coming. Let's keep on track. Keep on track with your faith. Amen? Let's pray.